0: Between April 25th, 1971 and September 5th, 1972, an unidentified serial killer terrorized the District of Columbia. Though he committed six murders, he has never been apprehended. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of the Freeway Phantom.
1: to a deep, well-lit, dank, still-moist recording studio. Coach, how you been? I know it's been a minute since we recorded our last episode. Really, it's actually been four, but... I'm all right. We're, we're in it today. We're, we're knocking them out for you folks out there in podcast land.
0: I'm all right, all right, all right. All
1: right. Well... We do not have anything new on the Patreon or five-star reviews. I do have a small business shout-out that I would like to tell our young listeners out there about. And this is for all of our Arkansas listeners, or I'm saying all of our Arkansas listeners because I just assume you know what happens when you do that. Anyway, any of our listeners that happen to enjoy the sport of waterfowling, like myself, this young man is Corbin Wade. He makes custom waterfowl calls. He has his Facebook page, Corbin Wade Custom Calls, and he is also on the Instagram at Corbin Wade Custom Call underscore new ACC. If you are interested, look him up. He has... Some great calls out there, and you can contact him for custom orders at 717 601 So that is our small business shout out of the week.
0: Yay, yay.
1: So this was actually a listener request. A friend of mine, we're traveling to New Orleans, and... Someone had turned them on to this story, and he was like, man, y'all need to do this. I think y'all could do it better. So we're going to give it a shot.
0: We're going to try, but first we're going to be, what are we drinking? Devil's Backbone?
1: Devil's Backbone, the Munchin' on Hops. It is an American IPA.
0: That's pretty good.
1: Has a malt backbone. Don't they all? Yes. (laughs) All right, so that is the beer of the week from the brewery, Devil's Backbone. So we get into the lovely case of the Phantom Freeway Killer. This is our our first
0: first serial killer,
1: and it met the criteria, which means we don't know who he is. So in the spring of 1971... Thirteen-year-old Carol Spinks was a seventh grader at Johnson Junior High School and was one of eight children, and she had an identical twin sister named Carolyn. They were described as inseparable, where Carol was very shy and her twin, Carolyn, was very outspoken. So on April twenty-fifth, 1971, it was a hot Sunday for April in Washington, D.C.'s Congress Heights. Carol's mom, Allentine, went to visit a relative, but before she left, she gave her children strict instructions not to leave the house or open the door for anyone. But just a little while after Allentine had left, there was a knock at the door. It was Carol's older sister, Valerie, who was actually across the hall in another person, or in her friend's apartment, and she was asking one of her seven other siblings to go to the local 7-eleven and pick her up some groceries she wanted a couple of tv dinners some bread and some soda now all of the kids said "Mm -mm, we know mama (laughs) and mama busted our butts but valerie continued to pester the other ones and continuously knocked on the door so eventually carol got tired of all of this and said fine i'll go Now, the 7-Eleven was in Prince George's County across the state border in Maryland. Along the way to the store, Carol actually runs into someone that she was not expecting to see, and that is her mama. And Allentine scolded her, and I can only imagine that conversation, for leaving the house, but did tell her that she could continue on to the 7-Eleven, but when she got home, there would be some severe punishment. Unfortunately, Carol would never come back home to know what that punishment was. A few hours would pass, and when Allentine arrived back home, she asked where Carol is. The other children inform her that she had not returned from the Seven-Eleven. Allentine starts getting panicked. She calls the police, and the police tell her Carol must have just run away. You know the old good standby, seventh grader, she run away.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's what they do, right?
1: Yeah, and this was the modus operandi for police in the seventies. Any a child went missing, oh, they just run away.
0: Yeah, they'll come back. Let's not let's not raise a fuss.
1: So, Alantine knew better, and she went out searching for Carol, but she could not find her. Carol had simply just vanished. She goes to the 7-Eleven, and the clerk said that they do remember her but did not, have not seen her since she had left the store with her purchases. Fast forward six days, and a group of kids were playing in a grassy area near St. Elizabeth's Hospital, and this is when an 11-year-old boy spotted the body of Carol by I-295. Carol was fully clothed, except her shoes were missing. Now, we probably should have done this earlier, (laughs) and I apologize because I had been thinking about it and just, it slipped my mind. But for some reason, if you allow your children to listen to our podcast, first of all, what are you thinking? (laughs) Second of all, listener discretion is advised in this episode. We will be discussing some things that happen to young children and teenagers that probably you don't want to have that conversation with your kids at this time. So if this may happen to be the case and you're listening to it in the car, I suggest you pause it or turn it off. But you have been warned. So when they find young Carol, she had been sodomized, she had been raped, she had been strangled, and had been dead for two to three days. She had cuts on her hands, her face, her neck, and her chest. Her autopsy would show that whoever had killed her had fed her some sort of a citrus fruit because they found undigested citrus fruit in her stomach. Authorities also find green synthetic fibers on her clothing.
0: So basically, whoever did this was evil.
1: And kept her alive for at least minimum three days
0: just ungodly like you just can't uh, i just can't fathom being that evil
1: yeah this one this one is not going to be a fun episode (laughs) as far as it is known carol went into the 7-eleven like we stated she bought the tv dinners a loaf of bread and some soda and eyewitness told authorities that they had seen carol walking back with the groceries So it's pretty safe to say that Carol had disappeared within a half mile between the 7 Eleven and her apartment. Carol's sister said that police were hardly around the neighborhood and she feared that it could happen, that if it could happen to Carol, that it would happen again. And unfortunately, it did. Now, two months would pass since the discovery of Carol's body. And. Darlenia Johnson, a 16-year-old girl who lived in the same neighborhood as Carol, left her home on July 9, 1971, headed to her job where she was a counselor at the Oxen Run Recreation Center. She was very excited that summer had arrived and was looking forward to spending time with her friends and her boyfriend. Darlenia's mother was not expecting her to return home until the following day because the recreation center was having a sleepover for the kids that night. Although her job was within walking distance from her house, Darlene never showed up to work. So when she, her mother finds out, she reports Darlene as missing. Now a witness came forward and stated that they had seen Darlene that afternoon with her boyfriend. Police tried to investigate this sighting, but the boyfriend's mother would not allow authorities to speak with him. Another witness would come forward and say that they had seen Darlene driving around with an older African-American man in an old black car. After Darlene's abduction, her mother would receive odd phone calls from a mysterious person. During most of the calls, the caller would be silent, but the mom would report that she could hear whoever was on the other end breathing. In the last call she received, the person on the other end said, quote, I killed your daughter.
0: Terrible.
1: It was evident and very common knowledge at the time in the neighborhood that after Darlene's disappearance, police officials did not seem to be taking the case serious. Approximately two weeks after Darlene's disappearance, a driver on I-295 pulled over due to car troubles. Upon ex- exiting their car to surmise, or surmise what was wrong with the car, he stated that he saw the body of a young female. He called the police to report what he had found. Now, this would make the second phone call that authorities would receive. After the first call, officers, officers,
0: officers.
1: officers made their way to I-295 but never got out of the car. They would state that they did not see anything that warranted them to exit the vehicle and would chalk this up to a prank call or a false report. On Monday, July 19th, 1971, an entire week after the first call stating that there was a body on the side of the interstate, one of the callers returned to the shoulder of I-295 to see if authorities had placed crime scene tape around the area. They were shocked and appalled to discover that the body was still in the same spot as it had been when they initially reported it to police. Now, I could not find why this happened, but the caller called Their boss. Again, I have no idea why, but it worked. The boss is friends with a police officer in Washington, D.C. at the time, Mr. Charles Baden. Now, Baden was off duty, but made his way to the scene and got police officials involved. That is when the body was discovered to belong to Darlenia Johnson. Due to Darlenia's body being exposed to the high July temperatures and heat she was not only unrecognizable, but most of the evidence on her body was gone. Although authorities could not get much evidence for sexual assault, they did determine that she had been strangled. Darlene's body was just 15 feet away from where Carol Spink's body had been found.
0: Wow. That's not far.
1: No. Not at all. That's five yards. So on July twenty seventh, 1971... Brenda Crockett, a 10-year-old from the northwest side of D.C., was given some money by her mother and asked to go to the local Safeway store to pick up a loaf of bread and some dog food. Brenda left home barefoot with curlers in her hair. Before she left, Brenda's mother recommended for her to go to the store with a friend. Instead of heeding her mother's advice, Brenda took off alone for the five-block journey to the store. An hour went by and Brenda's mother became worried and went searching for her daughter. A few hours later, while everyone else searched for her older sister, seven-year-old Bertha was home with her mother's boyfriend when the phone rang. She answered the phone and stated that Brenda was on the other end crying. Brenda told her sister that a white man had taken her and she was headed home in a cab. A key thing Brenda said to her sister before the phone call ended was that she was in Virginia. A short time later, Brenda would call home again. This time, her mother's boyfriend answered the phone. He tried his best to get more information out of Brenda than Bertha could have. But she ended up telling him the same thing. A white man had picked her up, but it was something strange that Brenda asked him before hanging up the phone. She asked, quote, did my mother see me? This struck him as odd because if she were in Virginia, how could her mother have seen her? <coughs> me. breathing Sorry. is not his strong point
0: <laughs> I've tried it many times it just doesn't work out a lot of
1: times it works <laughs>
0: <laughs> it has been theorized that the killer
1: had Brenda call home to make sure her mother had not spotted him it is also possible that Brenda's mother had actually spoken with her daughter's abductor while searching for her around the neighborhood Brenda's mother's boyfriend heard footsteps in the background of the phone call, and then the last words Brenda said over the phone before she hung up was, quote, I'll see you. Very chilling. Very chilling. Very much so. So on the morning of July 28th, 1971, a hitchhiker found the body of what appeared to be a little girl laying along U.S. Route 50. It was the body of Brenda Crockett. She had been strangled with a scarf... That was still wrapped around her neck. Something that police noticed was that Brenda's body looked clean, like whoever had taken her had washed her and washed her feet. Remember, she had walked to the store barefoot, so she would have had what we call in the South grocery store feet. (laughs) Flintstone feet. That's right. Authorities also find green synthetic fibers on her clothing. It is highly suspected that the kidnapper was someone who knew the Crockett family. It was also possible that the phone calls were scripted to throw off investigators. Now we get to Nino Mosia Yates, better known to her friends as Nino. She was a 12-year-old girl living with her father and stepmother in the northeast area of D.C. Nino's stepmother had recently given birth, so her father had sent Nino out to a Safeway grocery store, just like Brenda Crockett's mother had sent her. It was not the same grocery store, however. So Nino left the house around 7 p.m. and picked up paper plates, sugar, and flour. An employee at the store had said they saw these same items laying outside of the store. So it's safe to conclude that Nino was abducted in the Safeway parking lot. Just a few hours later, her body was found. And just like the previous victims, Nina was raped, strangled, and her shoes were missing. Nina was strangled so forcefully that the killer had broken her esophagus.
0: Holy shit.
1: Yeah. That's
0: some hatred, man. Yes. Like,
1: Deep hatred.
0: This guy this this I'm I'm gonna assume a guy because, you know. There's only a handful of women. Yeah. I don't think other than Arlene Warnos. Warnos. I don't think there's ever been a female serial killer, but this guy's messed up, man.
1: Guess what else they find? Tell me. Green synthetic fibers
0: on her clothing. Mm, Okay.
1: Now, a witness would come forward and report that he had seen Nino getting into a blue Volkswagen. After Nino's death, people in and around the D.C. area started to put pressure on the police to solve these murders. That is when police officials began connecting... All four deaths, and the press and the media would start calling the killer the freeway phantom. Six weeks after Nino's death, 18-year-old Brenda Woodard had dinner with a classmate at Ben's Chili Bowl in Washington, D.C. Woodard lived with her family in Baltimore, Maryland, and took night classes at Cardoza High School. Brenda and her friend both took the first bus back home from Ben's Chili Bowl, but Brenda had to transfer to another bus, so she said goodbye to her friend, exited the bus, and according to some reports, she actually made it onto the second bus. There are other reports that state that she never made it on the second bus. Her friend would be the last person to see Woodward alive.
0: What's going to be really interesting about her is she's going to be found with a note from the killer. Yes. So
1: on November 16, 1971, a police officer driving near Route 202 in Prince George's County discovered Brenda's body. She had been raped, strangled, but unlike the other victims, she had been stabbed multiple times. The black turtleneck that she was wearing at the time was on inside out. The buttons on her top and skirt were missing, And also unlike the other victims, she still had her boots on her feet. Police concluded that Brenda had fought back against her attacker as she had defensive wounds on her hands. And just like Coach stated, in her pocket, authorities find a note that read, quote, This is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me if you can. Freeway Phantom. And we'll put a picture of the actual note on our socials. The FBI would conclude after a handwriting analysis on the note that the killer had forced Brenda to actually write the note. The writing was a match to Brenda's other writings submitted by her family. Now, Detective Romaine Jenkins believed that Woodward, I'm sorry, Woodard, knew her killer as her handwriting was punctuated correctly. And I I still don't know how we make that leap. Just because she had punctuation, she knew her killer? I mean, I don't know. I that one's lost on me. Anyway, upon further examination of her clothing, authorities would find two separate hair samples along with guess what else?
0: Green fibers?
1: Green synthetic fibers on her clothing.
0: No way.
1: Now, morbidly, her body had been disposed of off another busy road near a bus stop that Brenda's mother used almost every single day. And just after the body had been discovered, Brenda's mom unknowingly stumbled upon the scene. And that is when she learned the fate of her 18-year-old daughter. Now, 10 months would pass between Brenda Woodard and the next victim.
0: That's a fairly long break. Yes,
1: and most everyone thought that the Phantom had stopped after the killing of Brenda. This was proven wrong on September 5th, 1972, when Diane Williams, a 17-year-old who had just started her senior year at Baloo High School in Washington, D.C. On the night of her disappearance, Diane was going to visit her boyfriend, but was told by her parents that she had to be home by 10 p.m. After spending the evening together, Diane's boyfriend walked her to the bus stop, kissing her goodbye. Diane headed to own the bus back home to Haley Terrace, located in the southeast of D.C. Unfortunately, though, Diane never made it back home. Her body would be found the next morning. She had been strangled and left along I-295, which was near her house. Unlike four of the previous victims... Diane's shoes were not missing, but they were placed next to her body. Some of Diane's neighbors would tell police they heard screams that night. Unlike all the other victims, no sexual assault was found, but semen was found on her clothes along with green synthetic fibers. Police would say they believed it, it, as in the semen, had come from her boyfriend, but when asked about the semen, Diane's boyfriend said that they it was not his because he and Diane had not gotten sexually involved that evening. To this day, authorities have not stated publicly if the semen sample has ever been tested. It is rumored that it was sent off to different labs, but that is as far as I could find any evidence about that sample. So but let's look at the similarities of the victims. All of these victims had several things in common. They were all African-American females between the ages of 10 and 18 that lived along the Washington Beltway, who had been ad- abducted while walking, and whose bodies had been dumped off of busy roads, such as either f- interstates or freeways. They were all of similar build, which was small and petite, which led investigators to believe that the killer might have mistaken all of them for being in the same age range. Four victims had their bodies left in Prince George's County, Maryland, while another two were disposed of inside Washington, D.C. Investigators believe that this might have been done intentionally with the killer trying to confuse authorities by overlapping jurisdictions. And remember, in the 70s, police authorities, they're not... Communicating with other jurisdictions. Not very well. Most unusual of the similarities was three of the victims shared the middle name Denise. Two shared the first name Brenda. Now these were odd correlations that likely had no importance but were of interest to the media at the time. And the media would run with the Denise middle name. Early 1970s newspapers reports hint at a perceived hatred of those names by the killer. But keep in mind, this was way before Google and social media, so there was no way the killer would have known the victim's middle names. So I don't think that had anything to do with the choosing of the victims. Three of the victims had been sexually assaulted, including one that was sodomized. However, remember, one of them was so decomposed they couldn't rule it out. Another was found with semen on her clothing, which raises the possibility that five had been the victim of sexual assault. In another coincidence, five out of the six victims were shown to be related via green fibers found on their clothing. The only one they couldn't tie the green fibers to was the very bad decomposed body of Darlenia. Police had found African-American hairs in three of the girls' underwear. Hairs of two unknown males were found on the clothing of Brenda Woodward, hairs whose origin is still unknown. Police would use that hair over the coming years to test for suspect validity, but they were unsuccessful in linking them to anyone. Now, in the early, you know, 71, 72, there was no such thing as criminal profiling. Hell, there was no DNA. There was Pretty much nothing. Just hunches. Now, authorities would attempt and try to, quote, guess at what kind of person would be committing these crimes. Keep in mind that Douglas and Wrestler were still a couple of years away from teaming up and forming the BAU at Quantico. So where did that leave authorities? Well... One thing you need to keep in mind is the FBI were called in after the fourth victim. However, they were quickly pulled from the case due to a little thing that was going on in Washington, D.C. at the time called Watergate. Was that a big deal? And a little, Just a little bit.
0: I don't, I don't, I don't recall anything about
1: that. <laughs> Talk about shit luck. Yeah. Now, a couple of the early investigators did consult some of the local psychologists in the area to get a better understanding as to what the offender was thinking. What you get are little bits and pieces of tangible insights into a killer like the Phantom Freeway killer. One doctor said the killer should be, quote, considered quite clever, end quote. He was likely to have a, quote, sociopathic personality disorder disorder and was likely able to function in society without attracting much attention to himself. Now, another doctor at the Springfield State Hospital in Saksville, Maryland, said that the killer was, quote, extremely dangerous, boarding on psychopathic extremes in behavior. Such a person would exhibit paranoid delusions, possibly st- triggered by phonetic sounds. Now, a Dr.
0: Radaduskas, yeah, I'm sure I killed that one, it, there's no way it's not right. I know. I mean, you, you're, you're getting so good at these pronunciations. Well, you know, it is my it is
1: my first language.
0: Now, Dr. Radosuskas...
1: Radosuskas is probably how it's spelled. But anyway, let's just say his name's Dr. R. He was a doctor at the Perkins State Hospital in Jessup, Maryland. And he stated that the killer, quote, likely functioned very well in society. He also suggested... It was a quote personality quirk, end quote, that manifested him to opt for strangulation as the means to kill his young victims. So a personality quirk made him do it. Hmm. Okay. All right, keep in mind that we are not aware of at how much information authorities actually shared with these doctors. So they could be giving them a lot of information or they could just be giving them what was in the papers. We really don't know. Dr. Regis Reesman, a forensic physician from Arlington, Virginia, suggested that the suspect felt inadequate and or insecure and that this is likely stemming from having a weak or absent male or father figure and a dominant or strong mother figure. He said that this would have led the offender demonstrating, quote, cowardly traits in his analysis, the suspect is paranoid and schizoid, a likely sadist since he appears to obtain sexual thrills from the use of physical violence. Dr. Reisman did not rule out that the suspect practiced necrophilia. The doctor believed that the suspect may be under the influence of drugs and he is possibly a megalomaniac, a braggart, who labors under a strong compulsion to kill. In his thinking, the likely suspect is clever clever. Clever, clever <laughs> with above average intelligence. Police actually stumble upon someone that is usually put on the same pedestal as wrestler and Douglas. And that is a former FBI na- agent named Walter McLaughlin. So they consult him and he was a pioneer years ahead in criminal sexual classification. He believed that the unsub was a young black male. In his words, quote, this is mostly substantiated with his free and undetected movement in these close-knit neighborhoods. He may have had or have a job or even live in those areas. In other words, he definitely has familiarity with the streets he was hunting on. The unsub demonstrated a degree of higher learning with at least one or two years of college education. The killer had ready access to an automobile. Based on the note left on Brenda Woodard and his action, he harbors a hatred towards women. McLaughlin further theorized that the unsub sought out victims who appeared to him in a personal manner, possibly linked to his mother, wife, or girlfriend. He did not see his victims as children, simply as females. The name Denise meant nothing. It was simply coincidental that some of the victims' names were shared. He also believed that the killer had previous run-ins with law enforcement, albeit probably minor incidents. His suggestion to investigator was to contact local high school English teachers to determine whether any students that they had in the past used overused or misused the word tatamount now dr oscar prado the director of forensic psychiatry at the springfield state hospital said that he believed that the killer was similar to a man quote going on a hunt choosing an area to operate where he would find a pool of potential victims who met his mental criteria in his mind, this was a white male based mostly on the fact that all the victims were black. Interestingly, he said if all the victims had been white, he would have thought it was a black suspect. Really? I was like, this guy may be onto something, and then he just screwed it all up. And to further his ignorance, he said that the killer was likely a leg man because all the victims were in skirts or shorts. Well, what? I mean, you were on to something, Doc, and then you just blew yeah, it out of the water. That
0: kind of that took a hard left for me.
1: Yeah. Now, trying to redeem himself, Dr. Mm-hmm. Prado said that the potential suspect would be, quote, typical looking in appearance, be in his late 20s in terms of age, extremely clever with above average intelligence. He would likely be unreliable as an employee, most likely working in some sort of blue collar capacity. The murderer had likely not been hospitalized, but if he had, it would have been for a crime related related to violence rather than that of sex. Dr. Prado suggested that the person they should be looking for was potentially suffering from a, quote, Superman complex with grandiose delusions. He was complex and consumed with a severe hatred of women. Prado was the only person authorities consulted with that suggested that the phantom was a white man. Now, let's touch on this for a second because this is really an underlying current in everything that you read about this. I really don't believe you're dealing with a white man hunting in predominantly black neighborhoods in the early 70s. And the reason I state that is I base this off the theory that was used in the Atlanta child murders. And they even reconstructed this theory in the show, Mindhunter. If you put a white man driving around in black neighborhoods, within minutes, you will have several eyeballs on said man. Whomever the Phantom was blended into the local scene. Now, the FBI did a formal profile in the 1990s of the Phantom. And it goes as follows. So from the standpoint of victimology, the FBI states that the victims were essentially at low risk of being the targets of violent crimes. What may have made them more susceptible was their age and being naive. Combined with being alone at night and outdoors increased their risk factors. Their common denominator was being adolescent black females alone at the time of initial contact with their killer in highly populated areas. The FBI concluded that their killer was not someone they knew, but a stranger. The FBI determined that the nature by which the victims were killed, the depositing of the bodies, and the fact they had no relation to their attacker all point to, quote, "...our conclusion that these homicides were perpetrated by the same assailant. The offender offset his risk somewhat by approaching the older victims later at night. His approach to his prey was to not apply immediate physical force." The lack of defensive wounds other than Brenda Woodard seemed to suggest that at least for a time the victims were willing to be in the company of the offender. Either they did not perceive him to be an immediate threat or he was able to gain complete control of his victims by fear and the threat of immediate and serious bodily harm. More likely it is suggested that the offender used a combination of the two. His approach to the victims may not be Even have been perceived by them as an immediate threat. Yet, once he had the victims alone, he was able to dominate and control them by the display and threat of a weapon, possibly a knife. With younger victims, the display of the weapon may not have been necessary, as they could have been intimidated by the offender's age, size, and/or verbal threats.
0: That is a mouthful, my friend.
1: The FBI said the Phantom's contact with his victims was opportunistic. The victims were out alone at night walking. This is not necessarily a standard pattern. Some were known to accept rides from strangers. The killer had to have used an automobile to abduct his victims. He may have simply used his car and offered a ride as part of his initial ruse. Quote, this does not preclude the possibility that he was driving around looking for potential victims, end quote, the profile says. Now, they go on to state, quote, the offender reduced his risk of having the bodies connected to him. If confronted near the disposal areas, he could have the same alibi as thousands of other travelers. I was just driving down the road. I saw a body, da-da-da-da-da. This procedure also offset the offender's risk of being seen in the short amount of time it took him to, quote, dump the bodies. They added he essentially removed any chance of being identified by killing the only witness he believed to exist, which was the victims. Now, the profilers in the 90s believe that investigators are dealing with a black male suspect. This is substantiated by finding of African-American head hair on many of the victims and the racial makeup of the neighborhoods where the victims were first approached and abducted. The killer was likely to be between the ages of 27 and 32. This was arrived at by examining the ages of the victims, the degree of trauma inflicted, the amount of control the killer had to use over his victims, and to a lesser degree, the willingness of the victims to initially be in the presence of their killer during first contact. The FBI admits, though, that the age of the killer was difficult to access. It proved difficult for them to compare the chronological age and emotional age of the freeway phantom. Quote, this estimate relates to a suspected chronological age. However, no suspect should be eliminated based on age alone. End quote. The murderer was smart, possessing a high school education and likely a higher education such as college.
0: The killer most likely held down a full-time job. Well, I mean, to leave no evidence, it's got to show at least some level of intelligence beyond, you know, grade school. Yeah, you're not dealing with someone that dropped out in the eighth grade. No. This is somebody who has a pretty sophisticated level of intelligence. Yes.
1: All of the killer's victims were confronted after what would be considered normal working hours. Their bodies were all disposed of late at night or early in the morning. The killer never demonstrated a desire to rob his victims. Everyone he picked up was too young to have any money of consequence on them. The FBI believed he could be working as a delivery man, a postal worker, medical assistant, a role in security, the military, or possibly a job in
0: recreation. Well, all I know for a fact is he's an asshole. Complete (laughs) utter. That's one thing I know for sure.
1: The freeway phantom is able to have relationships with people, even women, but likely does not have the skills to maintain, quote, healthy relationships. The FBI believes he is single and either lives alone or with an older, significant female. He follows his crimes in the media, hence having Brenda Woodard write a note found on her body. Now, the FBI stated that the killer owned his own vehicle, a late model car that he kept well-maintained. They go on to state that the, fr- the Phantom was not a drinker or drug user, at least during the times of his crimes. His control obsession would not have allowed it. The use of such substances would have lowered his inhibitions and possibly ruined the experiences he felt. He is also likely a sadist. They went on to say that if the murderer did have an arrest record, it would probably include, quote, vice-related offenses, such as solicitation for prostitution or assault on women. The offender feels no remorse or guilt as to him, killing the victims had no consequence. His only concern was that he may have been seen with the victims. Once he became assured he was not a suspect, he would have felt safe, end quote. Now, the FBI explored his, the killer's, deposition of victims too. When done with the murders and disposing of his victims, he went home or to another, quote, safe space. There was little or no physical evidence on him that would link him to the crimes. They did comment on why there was such a long period between Brenda Woodard and Diane Williams. There are two possibilities for this gap according to the FBI. One is after the resistance he experienced with Brenda Woodard, He may have had, quote, some difficulty and retreated into his fantasies of past killings, end quote, rather than return to his
0: hunting patterns. Yeah, but, I mean, Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, he took years between his killings. I mean, almost a decade. A little foreshadowing there. Maybe.
1: (laughs) Now... With Brenda fighting back against him, it ruined the experience for him or even scared him that he could not maintain control. The other possibility was that he had moved on, been institutionalized, jailed, or left the area. When he was trolling for Diane Williams, he returned to the same area where he had picked up Spinks and Johnson. Quote, consideration must be given as to why this series of murders has stopped. Based upon research conducted by the National Center for Analysis of Violent Crime, this type of offender does not just stop because he wants to. The offender has either died, been incarcerated in an institution of some kind, or has moved from the area. If the offender has moved, it is likely that the new jurisdiction has experienced similar murders of similar victims. End quote. Now, this profile was before the information on the Green River Killer, and just like Coach said, on the BTK Killer. We now know both of those serial killers were able to stop for long periods of times. At the time, the thought was the offender was dead, moved on, or in jail. Now we know more about the minds of serial killers. They can stop due to a change in their lives or a dangerous brush with law enforcement. The FBI profilers were clear to the investigators, however, quote, don't rule out a suspect just because he doesn't match the profile 100%, end quote. I'm with you. I think him stopping for 10 months, I think it scared him that she fought back. I, I, I agree with that. And I, now I have to look. She's think, the one that I think he uh, got
0: spooked and he decided to calm the fuck down for at least a little while. But, I mean, what stopped him after the six murders? What happened that, I mean, I why, why are
1: there not more?
0: That's what I don't know.
1: Now, um, trying to breathe new life into the case, there was a geographic profile that was conducted. And a g- geography plays a key role in these murders. The killer operated in a relatively small number of neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. The roads were important to him. That was where he dumped the remains of his victims. If you analyze the geography, it can really focus on what was important to the killer. What was his tie to the communities? And in this case, the geographic profile puts you right on ground zero. Now, for those of you that don't know, geographic profiling looks at where the victims resided where they were last seen, which is where they had contact with the killer, and where the bodies get dumped. These then factor in along with a variety of other things, including road systems, traffic patterns, traffic volumes, at certain times of the day. They look at things like the time travel to the crime scene and other criminal theories, such as rational choice. Geographic profiling is not intended to tell you where the killer lives or works, but that does sometimes happen. What it does is zero in on what are called, quote, anchor points. These are places where the serial killer has special connection of some sort. Now, in some cases, that can be their home. Other times, it may be where they work. More times than not, it is neither. An anchor point is merely a place where the murderer has a high degree of familiarity. They frequent these spots. These are often the places where they are most comfortable being. It may not even be where they have ties now, but where they had a strong connection in the past. The person that did the Freeway Phantom Geographic profile was D. Kim Rossmo. (laughs) That's a damn good name. Rossmo. Out of the Center for Geospatial Intelligence and Investigation at Texas State University. He was invited to pull it together by Detective Jim Tranium of the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police. It was a technique that was not available to the original investigators in the 1970s, and Trainum hoped that the use of this tool might help him as he reopened the freeway phantom murders. Geographic profiling cannot be used in every case. You need a string, string, you need a string of connected murders for it to be effective. You also need a specific kind of serial killer, a killer who is not roaming around. We know that the Freeway Phantom operated in a fairly tight area.
0: Yeah, it was not far at all, really.
1: No, it it was basically in the southeast neighborhoods of D.C. and just inside Prince George's County, Maryland. Now, the Phantom took his victims somewhere, most likely an abandoned house, and killed them, then drove their bodies to where he left them. He started doing a dump site initially. Carol Spinks and Darlene Johnson were found in a ridiculous small area. Remember, less than 15 feet apart. Uh, That is very, very, very small. His other victims were all left in southeast D.C. and Maryland. There are zones where a serial serial killer will and will not operate. Think of these as concentric rings and imagine his home or place of work is at the center. The neighborhood around that anchor point is well known to the killer. He knows the roads, the side streets, the traffic, everything. The problem is he is known there too. So if he tries to pick up a victim, the people in that center ring may very well know who he is and make him easier to capture. A killer is less likely in most cases to operate in that center ring around their anchor point. The next ring out is where the real hunting for victims takes place. These are neighborhoods and streets that the serial killer knows very well. At the same time, he is not known there. For the most part, he is a stranger there. The familiarity with the streets is real important. The killer has to be able to navigate with the victim to wherever he intends to kill them. These are the areas where he has spent a lot of time looking for potential victims. He has probably even made some trial runs from there back to where he kills them. And if he is smart, he knows something about the police patrols in that area as well. The final outermost circle is huge. This represents geography where the killer is not likely to operate. He is not familiar with the area. This area is where the killer is uncomfortable that he can pull off his crime and not get called. So where did the geographic profile say the anchor point for the freeway phantom was? St. Elizabeth's Hospital. St. Elizabeth or St. E's as the locals call it was not your typical psychiatric facilities in the 1970s. It was built around the time of the Civil War. It was huge, a campus really, consisting of many buildings, gardens, etc. The windows were all barred. The doors and stairs have industrial screening. For decades, this hospital was where the government sent their criminals and citizens that suffered the worst mental conditions. They used shock treatments and experimental medications there. So
0: basically where we should be. Yeah. Right now, <laughs> conducting this podcast. Yeah.
1: Those bars on the window were not there to keep people out, but to keep the loonies in. Now, remember, loony, loony, loony. The first two victims, Sphinx and Johnson, were left on I-295 on the shoulder, which is just 20 feet away from the perimeter fence for St. Elizabeth's. That is how much this facility was tied to the killer. It is entirely possible that it was a doctor or a worker there. Remember, that hospital is an anchor point for the killer. He has some connection there. That does not necessarily mean he was a patient there. Wow, that that doctor? It could be that he had a relative that was a patient there, and he spent a lot of time visiting them. That could explain his hatred towards women if his mother was committed.
0: Maybe, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. All right, now that we've got all that out of the way, we finally get into suspects. I got nothing. I know they named a few, but nothing came out of, out of any of them. So
1: there was a couple that gained legs, but kind of fell apart.
0: The more they dug into them,
1: the first one was the Green Vega Rapists. They were a small gang that which is an odd name
0: to name yourself. The Green
1: Vega Rapists. <laughs> we're the Green Ra- Vega Rapists.
0: That's what, that's our mo. We just rape. We're, we drive around in Vegas. <laughs> And
1: this is not funny, people, but this is so dark that we got to find some kind of humor in something. All right. So the Green Vega Rapists were a small gang that operated in the area around Washington, D.C., primarily along the Washington Beltway, but extending out into Maryland. These men drove around in a Green Chevy Vega.
0: Shocker. Clever name, then.
1: Which they used to kidnap and rape young women. All of the known members of the gang had been locked up on charges relating to sexual violence at Virginia's Lorton Prison. The members consisted of Morris, Joseph Warren, Paul Fletcher, John Davis, and Paul Brooks. Their incarceration was around the time that the Freeway Phantom ended his reign of terror. Now, having the trail go cold since the last victim, police were desperate for leads. That is when an anonymous tip forwarded to police hinted at a connection between the Green Vegas and the Phantom. The tip alleged that the Green Vegas, all of whom had been locked up for crimes of sexual violence, were responsible for more than 100 rapes in the region. Good Lord. And that's in 70, between 71 and 73.
0: Well, thank God they fucking captured those assholes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: One of the known acquaintances of the Green Vegas was interviewed by police. The informant spoke to police and over the span of a lengthy interview positively identified three of the murder victims from a photo lineup. Investigators believed they were onto something and moved their investigation inside Lorton prison. There they began speaking to Morris Joseph Warren, who, afraid that another member of the Green Vega gang, was about to start singing before he did he did not want to be left holding the proverbial bag so he agreed to speak to investigators only if they kept his name confidential he did not want to be labeled as a rat for fear of retribution so the investigators agreed so morris began feeding investigators information about the freeway phantom crimes which he alleged were perpetrated by a member of the green vegas he claimed at least one specific gang member in the murders and began giving details of specific dates, times, and locations. According to investigators, at the time, Warren had begun providing details beyond what was reported in the media. Quote, signature details is what they called them. Intimate details that would be known only by the responsible parties and investigators. Warren was taken out of prison on two specific locations and began pointing out where victims had been abducted, killed, assaulted, and then disposed of. His information seemed legit, but somewhat scattered, and investigators liked what they were hearing. Despite seeming to know specific details about the various murders, Morris had alibis for the days of several of the murders. This led investigators to believe that he had gotten his information from the actual killer. This lead seemed to have some promise until Morris's name was leaked to the press by none other than Prince George's County State's Attorney, Mr. Arthur A. Marshall, who just so happened to be running for re-election at the time. He wanted to tout his record for voters and announced to the media that he was closing in on an arrest for the Freeway Phantom due to a confidential informant that just happened to be an inmate at Lorton Prison. So Morris is actually, I'm sorry, Morris actually hears this dumbass say this on the radio while he's being driven back from one of the crime scenes. Fearing for his life and afraid that this detail would get back to the other Green Vegas, he refused to give any more statements. He immediately recanted all prior statements and rescinded his prior confessions, calling it, quote, an elaborate hoax to reduce his previous sentence. The investigators that were handling the case at the time would continue to believe that the Green Vegas were responsible for the freeway murders. However, other detectives that have handled or examined the case in recent years have pointed out that most of the information Morris Warren provided was all stuff he could have gotten from newspaper coverage of the murders. They did not believe him to have any real insider information and are doubtful that this gang of perverts were responsible for a serial murder spree. Now, another suspect is James Groom. His name first surfaced in October of 1972. To be more specific, it was October 21st. In an edition of the Baltimore Afro-American, which is a regional newspaper, this was roughly a month after the last victim of the Phantom had been discovered. Groom, who just happened to live in northwest Baltimore, had just been arrested for the kidnapping and sexual assault of a young woman. The victim was a 17-year-old waitress who had been waiting at a bus stop when a young white man pulled up in his vehicle and asked for directions. As they spoke, her bus came and went, so he offered to give her a ride home. She reluctantly agreed and realized real quick he had no intentions of taking her home. He drove her to a secluded area where she was sexually assaulted. Now, according to the young lady, following the assault, the man had then driven her away from the scene, telling her, quote, Have you heard of the Baltimore Washington Expressway phantom? Well, I'm him. End quote. The man also told the victim that he had recently returned from Vietnam, was lonely, and was sick of no one understanding him. He eventually let the young lady go, and she imme- immediately reported what had happened to police. James Groom was later re- arrested for the incident and charged with both kidnapping and sexual assault. It is unknown whether or not police investigated Groom as a legitimate suspect in the freeway phantom murders, but it was theorized in the article that he was not the real killer. He was just perhaps taking credit to scare the young lady. Now, the next suspect or suspects came to light in 1974, Edward Selman, which is sometimes referred to as Edward Sullivan and Tommy Simmons. Both were ex-cops that were arrested in relation to the 1971 murder of Angela Denise Barnes. She was a 14-year-old African-American girl that disappeared on July 12, 1971, just days after Darlene Johnson had gone missing. And remember, Darlenia was victim number two. Angela was heading home from a friend's home late at night, and her body was discovered the following morning in Waldorf, Maryland. Unlike the rest of the freeway phantom victims, She had been shot in the head. Now, a lot of investigators believed at the time, and some some still do, that her case is linked to the actual freeway phantom. Now, despite the possibility of Angela being a victim in 1974, Selman and Simmons were arrested for the crime and charged with murder. Both would eventually be convicted for the crime and sentenced to lengthy stays in prison. Investigators would cite that the Barnes case was not connected to the other six murders as they did not believe that Selman or Simmons had anything to do with the phantom killings. And last, we get to probably the most liked suspect for anyone that's ever looked into this, and his name is Robert Elwood Askins. And to say that he is a colossal piece of shit (laughs) is an understatement. Robert Elwood Askins was a middle aged black man that worked at St. Elizabeth's Hospital as a computer technician through the 1970s. He seemed to be a likable man who was known for his propensity to use the word Tatamount seemingly at random. Now, this is not the only box that gets checked when you look a little deeper into Robert's past. Not only was he a current employee of St. Elizabeth's Hospital during the 70s, But he was also a former patient that had been sent to the hospital in lieu of a prison sentence. In December of 1938, when Askins was a much younger man, he had poisoned a sex worker in Washington, D.C. with potassium cyanide. The cause, he said, was revenge for him contracting a venereal disease from another sex worker earlier in the year. The victim, Ruth McDonald, had actually died as a result of the poisoning, and Askins was later convicted for her murder. Askins would be sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital shortly after his arrest until he was, quote, mentally fit enough to stand trial. That ended up being 13 years later in 1952 when he was re-indicted and convicted of the murder charges. He would spend the next several years inside an actual prison until he was released in January of 58. His release was not due to him serving his sentence, but to a legal issue that resulted in his release. And I could not find out what that legal issue was. Good Lord, man. I know. Do your research, bro. I'm falling down on the job. (laughs) For the next 20 or so years, Askins seems to have been rehabilitated. He gained or he obtained gainful employment at St. Elizabeth's Hospital. 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 Hospital.
0: I'm not sure what that is. Oh, Jesus.
1: <laughs> As a computer technician and lived a seemingly quiet life. That is until 1977. Dun, dun, dun. When Askins abducted a 24 year old woman and took her back to his home. I
0: mean, there. Who hasn't done that, though? I mean. That's normal behavior, right?
1: Well, he went a little further and actually sexually assaulted and beat her Ugh. before letting her go.
0: Oh, he just let her go?
1: Yeah, I didn't understand that either. But,
0: I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm glad he did, but that's just weird.
1: Police quickly zeroed in on Askins as their suspect, but it was not until D.C. Detective Lloyd Davis began interviewing Askins and learned about his past that he began to connect the man to the freeway phantom murders. Not only did Askins seem to commit a similar crime in the vicinity of the Phantom Murders, but he lived and worked in the region. Police had long theorized that the killer had a tie to the Congress Heights neighborhood of Washington, D.C., where half of the victims had been abducted. And here was Askins, who not only fit the bill, but worked at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which just happens to be where two of the bodies had been disposed of and is also the center of the geographical profile.
0: That's pretty damning evidence. This boy's checking lots of boxes. he's got a lot of boxes checked off.
1: Askins also seemed to match the criteria that investigators had established the freeway Phantom would have. He was a middle-aged black man that lived in the neighborhood, had a proclivity for targeting similar victims, harbored a violent grudge against women... So, investigators would eventually obtain a search warrant for his home, and the search revealed many, many interesting clues about the man. He owned many scarves, which belonged to women, which officers described as soiled. Hmm. This stood out because he did not live with any women. So, where the hell did he get these scarves? I mean, you just get a collection over time, right? I mean, if he, you know, maybe they just leave him as. Yeah. Hey, baby.
0: Remember of- me. <laughs> He's got a lot of women coming to see him, and they just happen to leave their scarves. In addition
1: to the scarves were photos of unknown girls and young women. Oh, Okay, we can't explain that. And police found a knife that had been used in the commission of another crime.
0: Okay, he did it. <laughs> <laughs> We got him. The most unusual find
1: was the discovery that Askins loved to use the word tatamount. It was a word that had been used in his prior legal paperwork during his murder trial from the 1950s and subsequent release. I mean, that's all the evidence you need. Remember, the note in Brenda Woodard's pocket states, quote, this is tatamount to insensitivity to people, especially women, I will admit the others when you catch me if you can. Freeway Phantom. That's, I mean, that's... The usage of the word tantamount had often stood out to investigators, and here was a prime suspect that seemed to use the word
0: on the regular. But, I mean, how do they even know that he uses the word on the regular?
1: I guess they interviewed... Now I was thinking the same thing when I read this, but I'm thinking they interviewed people he worked with
0: at the hospital.
1: Okay, th- all right, that'll make sense. And but... then once they find... Once they ask... I guess it would have to go through... He may have screwed up and said Tattamount while they were interviewing him. Then they do some digging, find that he poisoned someone. There's tatamount that he used in transcripts.
0: Then they go talk to his coworkers. It's, it's just odd. It is. That's not a word that you... That's definitely not a normal word that most people use in daily conversations. Right. That's true.
1: Now, he used it so regularly that when his co-workers were interviewed, they stated to police they found him using the word odd. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) A search of Askin's vehicles raised even more alarms when police found two buttons and a gold earring underneath his back seat. Unfortunately, they were unable to link these to any of the victims. Now, despite all of the circumstantial associations investigators had made between Askins and the freeway phantom there was no direct evidence connecting him to the murders. Nothing seemed to link him to the six victims and a comparison of the green fibers that had been found on five of the six victims' clothing did not match anything that Askins owned. Askins would later be convicted on kidnapping and rape charges stemming from two separate incidences including the one that had put him on the police investigation's radar in 77. He would receive a life sentence and ended up spending several decades inside a penitentiary. He actually passed away in April of 2010 at the ripe old age of 91. One of the original freeway phantom detectives who long suspected Askins to be the killer continued corresponding with the convict until his death in 2010. During their correspondence, Askins continued to deny having any part in the freeway phantom murder, stating that he did not, quote, have the depravity of mind required to commit any of the crimes, end quote. But you had the depravity to poison a prostitute with potassium cyanide. But you didn't have the depravity to strangle and rape and sodomize teenage girls correct perfect it makes perfect sense perfect I mean I guess there's standards that pieces of shit have and we just you know we don't know about those they're unspoken anyway Askin remains one of the most popular suspects in the media as with many of the detectives that have worked this case past and present and that ladies and gentlemen is all the facts suspects profiles details of the phantom freeway killer or freeway phantom killer well we get into our theories and i'm just gonna i think you could figure it out nothing i think askins did it even though he's now here's the thing though people always state well he why would he just not go ahead and admit to it because he's already in prison yeah you know what happens when you com- you admit that you raped and murdered six teenagers in the 70s? They put your ass to death. hmm So I think that's his motivation to keep his mouth shut. But that's just my two cents. I really, honest to God, do not—I think he is the closest person— on the suspect list that fits the bill. He checks a lot of boxes. There may be someone else out there that has just flown under the radar and you might not get it until, you know, a deathbed confession or something like the Golden State Killer. He happens to screw up and have his DNA tested and it matches something.
0: I was thinking the Golden State Killer to begin with might be a uh, viable suspect. I mean, it pretty much matches his M.O., you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. But he stayed in California.
0: You don't know that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're killing me! (laughs) You don't know for sure. I mean, when you Google the Freeway Phantom, his his picture comes up. That is true. It is. I will give you that. How could he not be the 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 killer?
1: Well, I don't. I mean, I don't have anything else short. I mean, I liked where the the Green Vega theory was going until it came out that, that people that investigated the murder later kind of went back and read the newspaper articles and all the stuff that that one guy was saying was actually available in the newspapers. Does that lessen it at the time? Possibly. I mean, Possibly. Th- those are two viable
0: suspects. I would I would have to agree.
1: But there's nothing I mean, there is nothing else out there. This case is 50 years old. 50 years old, man. I don't think he's still active. No. (laughs) If Askins died at 91, this guy is either on death's door or already dead. So now we get into recommendations. And I will go first, and I will recommend that if you are interested in this case, that you pick up the book, Tatamount, The Pursuit of the Freeway Phantom Serial Killer... They named the book after them. Mm-hmm. Nice. By Blaine L. Pardo and his daughter, Victoria R. Hester. They have a podcast. That's such a nice way to bond. You know, you and your daughter. Over serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> they have a podcast, and I don't remember the name of it. But if you, if you search the Freeway Phantom Killer, theirs is one of the first ones to pop up. Give them a listen. Uh, they're not very long. So if you got a short commute or if you're cleaning house, you know, pop it on, listen to them. They do they go into a lot more depth with suspects, ask-ins, the geographic profile, the actual FBI profile. They have some like insider people that are have access to the case files, which and that's something we didn't touch on. The police bumbled this whole investigation. Not only did you have Watergate pulling the FBI off of the case, but you also had the Metropolitan Police and the DC Police not sharing with Prince George's County, and then they just lose the damn case files. Unbelievable. And it's not like they had a mysterious flood or fire, they just
0: fucking lost them.
1: In a serial killer's case, I mean, yeah. an unsolved, set. he's in known the, to kill well, seven. I mean, you know, I mean the, six.
0: In the history of our podcast, you know, we've uncovered several, several times where the police. Drop the ball. Kind of not done their job properly.
1: Now, there's a lot of websites out there that get more in-depth into the race side of this investigation. I did not feel like that was warranted. No. However, it was— Because there's one
0: thing that we're not,
1: we're not racist. No, and I don't want to give that—I don't want to put
0: fuel to the fire. Yeah, and I mean— t- at the end of the day, six young women lost their yes, lives. they did. And they may believe that it was an African-American, but as we know in the history of serial killers, it's not very often that they happen to be black. It's mostly white dudes who have the issue with killing people in a serial manner. And the only reason that I kind of went with what
1: they were saying was I still find it hard to believe in the early seventies in the black neighbor, inner city neighborhoods that a white man riding around offering rides to little black girls is not run out of town. Yeah.
0: That's going to be big red flags.
1: And if you watch Mindhunter, he is called in on the Atlanta child murders. So he goes back to, I think Baltimore and he goes into the inner city projects with, I cannot remember the black detective's name that they brought on early in the case, but anyway, they go into the inner city, with, and the guy that's after uh, Doug, that's modeled after Douglas, walks into the the projects with his shirt and tie on, and within like thirty seconds, you got mamas hanging out of windows, you got guys on the corner eyeballing him, and <laughs> one mama's like, "What the fuck are you doing here?" <laughs> so that's why I kind of it's a wrong neighborhood, yeah. homie. And that was during daylight hours. <laughs> so that's why I kind of lend credence to it had to be someone that that blended in. Now, that doesn't mean that it couldn't be a white police officer. It couldn't be a white doctor at St. Elizabeth's. I will concede that. Yeah. But, yeah, you're not just going to walk up into those type of neighborhoods. I can guarantee you right now I can walk down to the end of Broad Street into South Rome, and within 10 minutes, <laughs> there's a white man over here with flip-flops on <laughs> And that's not being I'm not being racist. That's just how Yeah, they people are protective of their
0: neighborhood. Yeah. And also keep in mind, and I know I gave white, my recommendation white, black, Hispanic, yeah. it doesn't matter. People are going to be protective of their neighborhood. That's a that's a normal activity. That's not anything to
1: Well, one thing I was reading on Reddit, um web sleuth, basically anything comment wise in articles, how could these parents let these kids go out by themselves, ma'am? It was nineteen seventy one.
0: Kids went and bought cigarettes for their grandparents. <laughs> Man, I grew up in the eighties, and my mom would lock me out of the house. Yeah, during the summer, she was like, "No, nah, don't don't come back till uh, dinner time." And i would be, I'll be. It's out. nine
1: thousand degrees out here, yeah. mom. I'm
0: drinking out of the water hose. It tastes like <laughs> shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, that's just how it was. I remember as a kid, there was a little
1: country store, maybe three quarters of a mile from our house, and we had to cross a major highway to get to it. Now, my grandparents lived just 400 yards on the other side of it, but we never went past the store to my grandparents. We just rode to the store, got a Coke, got a candy bar, something like that, and then drove and rode our bikes back. Yeah. If my son wanted to do that now at 15, I would shit my pants. (laughs)
0: No, It's 15, he's 15, you'd let him. My wife wouldn't. (laughs) Yeah, you might have to answer uh, to the boss, but...
1: But it was just a different time. And I think that's the thing that you have to keep in mind. These kids, and even in the profile that the FBI released, they were not at high risk because all of their friends were doing the same thing. Yeah, it's just something that parents did. Hey, we're out of sugar. Run down to the 7-Eleven, half a block away, half a mile away, three blocks away. It's just some, one of those things. And, But it just goes to prove you cannot protect
0: yourself from evil people. They no. will find a way. Yes, they will. And unfortunately, we live in a world where there are tons of evil people. And... Some It seems like it's more prevalent because we're so connected. Yeah, we definitely are more connected and you definitely see, are exposed to more of it. You hear about it more, more often yeah. than you would have.
1: Right, I agree. Well, since I like
0: spit out my recommendation like 10 minutes ago, what do you have there, Slappy? I'm g- <laughs> I'm going to recommend the YouTube page of Matthew Santoro. He's been doing a, a lot of good stuff lately and he he has good content, but for whatever reason, he doesn't... He millions of subscri- subscribers, but he doesn't get a lot of views le- these days. He posted a video about getting as many views as he needs to to be profitable, so I'm going to promote him because I like his page. Good deal, man.
1: Yeah, you man. got any closing thoughts on the Freeway Phantom or anything in society? He's one? an asshole. He is a complete dirtbag. And I hope he's dead. Douche canoe. And I hope he, you know... Is having to tickle the devil's balls... <laughs> With his tongue.
0: (laughs) I hope he died a painful death. I hope it wasn't pleasant. I
1: hope it was excruciating. Someone cut his oxygen off, (laughs) forgot to give him his insulin. But that,
0: I mean, you did a pretty good job considering this our first serial killer. I mean, uh, but yeah, if you, if people out there have any recommendations, please let us know. We take suggestions on occasion and this was one of them.
1: I want to thank uh, Mr. Martez Ferris for recommending this and his lovely Haley, thank y'all for awesome. recommending recommending this. But thank you. Uh thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to our Patreon patrons. If you are not a Patreon patron, we have a dollar tier. It's not gonna kill you. You come piss away more than twelve dollars in a come week. On, come on, people. Show some love. Yeah, man. You'll get to be in the cool kid club. <laughs> we won't make fun of you anymore. But anyway, got anything else? I uh, do not. <laughs> Deuces! <laughs>